so uh, welcome to this uh, <coughs> contribution to the LSE Literary Festival. We're going to have a discussion on private lives. Do we still value privacy? So I'm George Gaskell. I'm a pro-director here, but I also have the uh, great pleasure and privilege of chairing the Literary Festival Committee. And I hope those of you who've been around over the last few days have enjoyed, as I have, some really rather sparkling discussions and presentations. So let me make a few uh, observations, a bit of throat clearing before the experts say something uh, a bit more penetrating. Most people, I think, would probably agree with uh, Françoise Hollande. If you remember, the president of France was going through a little um, local difficulties. <laughs> and he said that private matters should be dealt with privately in a uh, press conference where I think it was probably a British journalist, but maybe it was a French journalist, had inquired after his marital affairs. Now, I don't think Hollande's view is shared that widely. One thinks of um, uh, the National Security Agency in the United States, ably assisted by GHQ in this country, GCHQ, I beg their pardon, who seem to have an enthusiasm for collecting uh, emails, tweets, whatever else. Uh, this uh, great trawl uh, of, of data which must be somewhere in cyberspace and they're looking into it. Um, it's also, doesn't appear that the younger generation are terribly keen on the Hollande perspective. Uh, social media seems to get very near the bone on occasions. I've even heard that some of our students in going for jobs, they go for the interview, the recruitment people in the company check their social media contributions, and some people have, uh, in a sense, not been appointed on account of some of their more egregious activities which they have taken into the public domain. So, some problems there, but I think many people on occasions are prepared to set aside privacy in the public good. One thinks of uh, UK Biobank, which has signed up something like half a million people, and they are providing their genetic information, their medical records, their lifestyle activities, and so forth, all in the interests of research into the etiology of various diseases. I noticed the other day that there are limits to this. Uh, the NHS um, has this new, now what's it called? Care data. But this has run into a few problems because whilst I think the people who thought they weren't opting out of this, this is very much an opt-out scheme, not an opt-in a lot more people seem to be opting out on discovering that the N someone in the NHS decided to sell the data to an insurance company, which hmm, I think people thought was uh, quite inappropriate. So, we come to the question. What is our current understanding of privacy? What are our rights in the digital age? Do we have to be resigned to the fact that when we go online, we uh, surrender the private domain? Now, to air these views, I mean, not those particular questions, I am delighted to welcome two colleagues from the LSE, 
Ellen Helsper, who is an associate professor in the Department of Media and Communications. Ellen has, uh, for many years, been working on digital uh, media. She's been an advisor to the UK government and to the European Commission. She specializes on children, is involved in a very big project called Kids Online, and looks at social and digital exclusion. Andrew Murray is in our law department. He's a professor, and he uh, is an expert on regulation and privacy, human rights in the digital domain. And our final speaker is Josh Cohen, who is a professor of literature at, the, uh, at uh, Goldsmiths College. And uh, to mangle one of Woody Allen's phrases, he's a great supporter of the couch industry. He's a psychoanalyst. Um, and he actually uh, has a book, which I've enjoyed reading. I've forgotten the title already. <laughs> the book is called The Private Life, Why We Will Remain in the Dark, and it is available at the bookstore, and uh, Josh will be very happy to sign copies, and it comes with my recommendation. Very pleasant read. So, uh, just a few details of what we're going to do. Our, our three experts are going to talk for 10 to 15 minutes, uh, and then we'll open up the discussion to you. Um, as usual, there will be roving microphones in order for the podcast to work. You have to speak into the microphone, please. Uh, and there is, for those of you who are Twitter uh, activists, a hashtag, a hashtag on the uh, board. So on the principle of ladies first, I'm going to invite Ellen to uh, make her presentation. Thank you very much, John. Thank you, George, for the introduction. So now, since we do have slides, I need to find them. There they are. So, me the honour to start this discussion off. Um, as George already said, I've worked um, in uh, the area of digital and social exclusion and how they are linked. So in this presentation, when I talk about privacy, I will also be looking at who cares about privacy in which way and uh, whether that should concern us. What are the issues there? Since the theme of this these days has been um, reflections, uh, the literary festival, I thought that I'd do this presentation more in terms of my reflections on this issue and in the research that I've done. I will be showing you some quotes from people that I've interviewed, qualitative research that I've done, because I, I think it's really important in this area to let the people speak, because there's a lot of assumptions about what privacy is and what privacy means and whether we actually still care about privacy. There's a lot of claims around, George touched upon some of them, that we don't care about privacy anymore, that it doesn't concern us in this digital world, that especially younger people don't care anymore, who knows what, that we have become careless of our personal data and that... Um, as a consequence of that, our identities are public, who we are is public, how we perceive ourselves is public, that what is publicly available for, about us becomes who we are. So that this idea that we share everything now, that we've lost track of the boundaries of who we are and who we want to be. 
Who we are really is just a bit of Googling away. I'm, I'm sure that many of you have Googled yourself to figure out where you are, who you are, what other people know about you, and maybe, by definition, what you should know about yourself. So here I will reflect a little bit upon whether these assumptions are true, whether there has been a major shift in how we understand privacy and how we deal with privacy when it's breached, when it's violated, or how we try to prevent privacy breaches and violations. And I will focus in particular on this idea that it's a generational shift that young people somehow have this completely different perception of privacy. But before we start, I think it's really important to reflect upon the way that we have always conceptualized privacy. What is privacy? How have we understood it before in our everyday lives, in our relationships to other people? And how was it constructed when the world was perhaps less digital? Privacy really is not a state in the way that we've been talking about it in our interpersonal relationships. It's a process, it's continuous, it's a negotiation with others, with ourselves as well. It's about who we are in relation to the others around us. It's interactive, it's contextual, it's social. It's one of the most social things there is. Privacy is unimportant if there's nobody else. Because if there's nobody else, who cares? Who cares about privacy? It is a give and take. It's about deciding in every interaction with every person what you're going to give that person about yourself. And that's dependent on what the other person gives you, what you get back. It's reciprocus in that sense. We can never be, nor do we really ever want to be, completely private. If we want to interact with others, we will have to give. We will have to tell them something about ourselves, either in our body language or in our words and the information that we give them. So there's no such thing as absolute privacy. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, and that there never was such a thing as absolute privacy. It's also related to the other and how we define the other to be. Our perception of who the other is and what they deserve to get from us determines how we define what it is that is too private to share. Where we are, in which context we are, determines what we consider appropriate to share. What is private is therefore an extremely normative debate. And different people have always had different conceptions of privacy. Different cultures have had different conceptions of privacy. What is private and what is public has not only changed continuously over time, but within the same time period, changes between different individuals. So, is privacy, as some people tend to argue, an obsolete concept? Should we not really care, or more importantly, do we not really care about it anymore in an age where everything seems to be on the table, where we seem naked in a digital space, where everything is preserved in addition for eternity, that once we've done something, people will know it forever and ever and ever. And that becomes who we are. Maybe, as some suggest, we should just give up and give in. Because if no one cares and everybody shares, then our flaws and the things that we did when we were young and in high school and drunk or old and out and about, 
becomes unimportant. Because if everything about everybody is public, then what is public about you is less important. So if all that is private is public, if all that is private is shared, there is just one universal, messy, fallible public us, and it doesn't matter anymore. However, I will argue here that on the contrary, there has hardly been a time when we have cared more and talked more about privacy. The fact that we have this panel and that we're talking about it right now kind of says we care, right? We care about privacy. So this idea that privacy is dead, as um, some people, especially those who earn platforms that kind of force us to share, have argued, I think is a moot point. It's not dead. But maybe the more important question is, not whether we care or not, but who cares in which ways? And what our concerns are about the ways in which it might be redefined. Can we still talk to about each other to it? Or about it to each other? Or do we have this general shift? And as with the introduction of most new technologies, especially those that influence our private lives, our concerns tend to go towards children, who we see as vulnerable, who we see as different, who we see as some people that need protection, or that we need protection from, because they are angels, but bullies as well. The interesting thing is that we often talk about these topics without really consulting these children, or listening to what they have to say about it. And I want to change that a little bit in this presentation. So I will be talking about some of the research that I've done with the EU Kids Online project. Uh, another project was the Long Tail of Digital Inclusion, where we talked to both parents and children. And in a project that I'm currently involved in, which is about the tangible outcomes of our engagement with technologies, and what people get from engagement with technologies in their offline lives. When we talk about children, we often talk about them as if, in this digital age, they've grown up on a different planet, as if the world that they live in is alien to us. And this has led to a series of contradicting arguments about privacy, especially in relation to children, and how it's different for them than it is for us yeah, as adults. This, is, this underlying discourse of us versus them is not very productive because it puts them away from us and it doesn't allow us to talk to them. So the argument is that they don't care about privacy. That's the first one. They don't care. So, because they've come so accustomed to this digital world in which everything is on the table and shared that they don't see it as an important point anymore. On the other hand, we also often talk about them as if they do care, but in ways that are not the right ways to care about them, in ways that hide stuff from us, from adults, so that they can go off and do their nasty things, do bad things anonymously. That's how we often talk about the flip side of that. The argument, other argument is that they don't really know how to care. They're this vulnerable group. They grow up in a different time. They are sub subject to predators, therefore, because they don't know how to manage themselves and their identities. People who prey on them and trying to figure out where they are so they can take advantage of them. On the other hand, again, we also talk about them as digital natives, as people who've grown up in a digital world and are therefore so familiar and comfortable with it that we don't really have to worry about them. Because just by 
growing up in this world, you will know how to handle it, right? So let me show you some of the research that I've done. I'm showing you quotes of children and adults as well. And to preserve their privacy, I don't indicate how old they are, what their names are, where they are. They are from in several different countries. So there is some evidence that they don't care, that children don't care. For example, around half of the children who use social networking sites say that they've included at least one of three types of information about themselves, their address, their phone number, the name of their school, things that we would consider private in the sense that other people might locate you or know who you are. When we ask children to say what concerns them online in social media, the things that worry adults the most, like giving up personal information, don't tend to appear spontaneously in these children's discourses. And children who have their, public pro- uh, their profiles set to public are more likely than those who have their profiles set to private to share personal data. So there is some evidence that they don't care, or at least in their actions they don't care. This needs to be positioned within a discourse that keeping things private is wrong, that you must have something to hide if you want to keep things private. And as a discourse, it has to be said, George already pointed towards this, that this is a discourse that comes mostly from adults. That in this age of transparency and public accountability, privacy in some ways is not a good thing to aim for. However, upon reflection, and while I was preparing this presentation, it's not easy to stick to that point that they don't care. Because there is a lot more evidence that they do care when we talk about children. What they care about when they talk about privacy, however, is the real question to answer and ask. Both adults and children, when they are asked to reflect on privacy or on their engagement with others in an online sphere, indicate that they care about protecting infos mostly from their equals, from their peers. It's a reputational damage that they're worried about, rather than privacy from bodiless, corporate or governmental organizations. We accuse young people of not being worried about the future, but actually when you talk to adults, and this is an adult, yeah, this is the thing that comes up when they talk about privacy. They're concerned about their friends. They're concerned about what happens when you come home, when you go to work, when you go to school. Those everyday consequences it what defines where we set our boundaries. And they, as in children, they do care. They care a lot about protecting themselves from us, from adults. And they have a feeling that their privacy gets invaded all the time. In school, teachers go and look at their private profiles. Um, We see this as well in adults. Like now, if you join any public body in the UK, if you're a police officer, for example, you have to hand over your password to your social networking profiles because they want to check what you say in private. So there is this issue there because we want them to care about privacy in some ways, as in protecting them from others, adults, but we don't want 
young people to protect themselves from other adults who are we consider important in their lives. The other argument is about literacy, really. It's about, well, maybe they care, but how come, if they do care, is there so much publicly available information about children? Why do they share if it's not that they don't care? So again, there's some evidence that they don't know how to care. So given its popularity especially, it's of concern that almost half of the younger Facebook users, 9 to 11 year olds, more or less, and a quarter of the older Facebook users say that they are not able to change their privacy settings. So they can't. A similar lack of knowledge among kind of younger children especially is evident in relation to children's ability to block another user. About 60% of younger children knows how to do this and about 80% of teenagers does, which leaves a quite sizable minority who does not know how to block and which is quite a basic function. However, let's not kid ourselves. It's not like adults know how to do this. Many adults don't. In fact, privacy settings, I just try to avoid it, right? I just don't go on social media because then I don't have to worry about it. And here for me is an important point. If we look at who lacks these abilities, this literacy to do this, we know that the most vulnerable amongst the children and both the, and the adults are those who have the hardest time protecting themselves. Those who have the greatest need for social interaction online because they lack meaningful interactions offline are also the ones who, who lack a lot of the skills to protect themselves in this online environment. And again, this is true of adults as much as it is of children. Those who are socially and digitally literate are those who are also literate in the online world. Yeah, so the offline and the online are very much linked, and I think we shouldn't forget that when we try to figure out what's going on in these social media platforms. So the other argument is about digital natives. Yeah? Young people grow up in a digital age, so they know how to care. And again, there's evidence. As I just said, not every young person is a digital native, nor is every adult a digital immigrant when it comes to privacy. And there are quite a few strategies that people apply and none of them, or most of them, are not technological in the way that we as researchers, as policymakers, often define privacy protection, where, you know, blocking or, or doing that. They are instrumental actions, like going out and telling somebody to delete a picture, a photo. They are self-monitoring. They just don't share certain things, but again... Comparing that to who you should share with is important. Who is the other that you're trying to share with? There's behavioral avoidance, like the adult that we were just talking about, who just said, okay, I just don't go on social media. And those are the people we often miss when we talk about this. But they're doing this. So most of these privacy management techniques are social rather than technological. And they're contextual and appropriate to the specific relationship that we have with the other person on a particular platform. So I'm going to finish this presentation by saying that the honest-to-God truth is that this makes it really, really hard for us as researchers, or people who reflect upon these matters, to say anything about whether they or we care 
but it makes it really hard in particular to say about we, what way we care, the way in which we care, how we care, what it is that constitutes this caring. There's strategies to deal with breaches of privacy, but they vary so much. And the way that we discuss and talk about privacy is so contextual and specific to specific platforms and specific relationships that it is almost impossible to come up with like a general discourse on privacy and what it is. This makes it ideal for reflection and discussion, a kind of wonderfully fluid and philosophical debate, but it makes it really hard to do research or to design policy around it because you would have to do research of the individual or a policy for the individual, which is really, really hard. The only thing that I therefore know is that we don't really know. But I do know that we care and that we will continue to care about privacy and that the how of our caring is really frustratingly elusive. And that as well. Thank you, Evan. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, when I was um, thinking earlier this week about uh, exactly what to say uh, in the specific context of this panel, I um, just called up the email I'd sent to Louise Gaskell, who had invited me to this panel, and, um, and who George has just told me, if he doesn't mind this mild infraction of privacy as his daughter. Um, uh, he might mind. Uh, uh, I, um, I found my response to her question about what I might say at this event. And I said something that, you know, on my first scan looked fairly reasonable to me as an approximation of what I was going to say, which was um, that I wanted to talk about how the culture of surveillance and how various incursions into privacy was threatening to close down the spaces in which we cultivate our interiority. So I, I said this, and then I, I looked over it again, and I realised that that wasn't what I'd said. What I'd, what I'd written, what I'd written was uh, that it was closing down spaces in which to cultivate our inferiority. <laughs> um, so my first, my first response was, well, she probably didn't even notice. She probably just, you know, did something with her procedural memory that turned it into interiority. And I thought, well, even if she does notice, she knows that the T is close to the F. That, that'll, that'll probably be sufficient explanation for her. But it wouldn't kind of stop gnawing away at me. And at a certain point, I, I kept thinking, but what will she make of it if that's what she actually read? What on earth does that mean? A shrink is writing and talking about cultivating people's inferiority. <laughs> do I actually sit there behind my patients telling them how rubbish they are? Or do I perhaps do something more experiential, like, you know, take them to a tennis court and, and, and coach them in overhitting forehands? Um, <clears throat> anyway... Um, I just thought that I would begin uh, as, as the uh, token psychoanalyst with, uh, with a nice Freudian slip, which I may or, or may not return to. But um, I, I especially appreciated the title of this event. The, uh, the focus of news and of commentary on privacy issues has been very much 
and appropriately enough, on the ways that state and non-state agencies have or have not respected our privacy rights and our personal data. And these are undoubtedly vital questions with profound implications for our liberty, for our democracy. One of the reasons, though, for, for writing this book is that much as I was exercised like any other citizen by these questions, I felt that it wasn't and isn't enough to see ourselves as passive victims of state, corporate or media intrusion. That if we are living in a culture of intrusion, of visibility, it really does behoove us to think about the ways in which we're complicit in it. So that the erosion of privacy is not merely a political or legal or technological problem, but also a cultural and, phys- and psychological one, in which we are both witting and unwitting participants. The public understanding of and protest against the scope of state and corporate surveillance and intrusion has been at best muted and uncertain. And I wonder if this doesn't link to the ways in which the various offences against privacy are all too continuous with the intrusive culture in which we all live, breathe and participate. Perhaps it is hard to generate real outrage against a phenomenon with which we continue to be so complicit. Social media encourage us to share our deepest intimacies from birth to sex to grief. We're encouraged to create and broadcast life logs that might reveal not only the intricate data of our bodily and neurochemical lives, our cholesterol intake, our mood swings, no doubt, soon enough our serotonin or dopamine levels. Some loggers are using wearable cameras to record and instantly upload and broadcast their every waking moment to the world. But even those who aren't so actively complicit in self-exposure will avidly consume and demand the perpetual drip feed of reality TV, celebrity gossip and the more everyday forms of ongoing personal revelation on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. And I find this nexus between the erosion of privacy and entertainment or casual distraction hard to dissociate from how we conceive the self in contemporary culture. In the private life, I argue that our private selves cannot be equated with the circumscribed spaces of the bedroom. I I very much um, agree with Ellen, if I've understood her rightly, when she says that privacy is not a discrete, sort of circumscribable state, but um, a kind of ongoing process, something that, if you like, leaks into everyday life at every moment, including when we are public. So it can't be reduced to the circumscribed spaces of the bedroom or the bank account or any other form of personal space or data. That is, we don't cease to be private when we enter the public realm. Now, 
for psychoanalysis. The private self isn't a discrete entity that we can leave behind, but it's a perpetual presence, concealed and revealed in the minutest aspects of our being and our behaviour. Again, Ellen was talking about body language, the ways in which even when we think we're withholding ourselves, and perhaps even in the very act of trying to withhold or disguise or conceal ourselves, we might unwittingly tell a lot about ourselves. Uh, Even when we think we're um, uh, sending ordinary bits of information via email, we might be telling somebody either how inferior we think we are or how superior we think we are. Um, I will will leave it to you to interpret. Um, What we call the unconscious is a kind of ineliminable strangeness in us, an otherness that ensures whenever fully transparent to others, or indeed, and this might be more important, to ourselves. Now, in the context of this debate... Why does this matter? Why does it matter how psychoanalysis conceives of the self? Well, because this sense of ourselves as irreducibly ambiguous, divided between the light and the dark, is, I think, at odds with a kind of implicit model of selfhood that pervades our contemporary culture of permanent visibility. My sense is of living increasingly in a culture of tacitly coerced self-externalisation, which corrodes and closes off the internal and external spaces in which the private self can be cultivated. The culture of social media and the live vlog encourages us to view our own selves as reducible to its external manifestations. The pictures we can take of ourselves, the data we can share about ourselves, in short, we become reducible to the self that can be put on display, as though that were the sum of us. (coughs) To um, quote a line from uh, Don DeLillo's classic novel, White Noise, um, the... uh, the techno-bureaucrat who tells um, the narrator, Jack Gladney, who's been contaminated by some kind of toxin, you are the sum of your data. The American cultural and scientific empresario, editor and commentator, uh, John Brockman, speaks approvingly following the great media theorist Marshall McLuhan of the emergence of what he calls the collective externalised mind that renders any notion of an irreducible interiority quaintly anachronistic. The virtual culture of the web transports the self beyond what he calls the private and personal mindset associated with the Freudian unconscious, along with, of course, other models of, uh, of psyche, of selfhood, but it transports us beyond the private and the personal and into a zone of pure exteriority in which the individual mind has effectively turned itself inside out and plugged itself into what he calls the mind we all share. Now, in a way, 
not in a way. I do find this conception of the self fanciful. Kind of sci-fi, utopia or dystopia, depending on which way you want to read it. I find it fanciful because I don't believe that even the most profound cultural revolution that the internet undoubtedly is but not even the most profound cultural revolution can eliminate the gap between the self we display and the self we conceal. On the other hand, I'm aware that Brockman's version of a fully exteriorized self may be much closer to the spirit of our cultural present and indeed our future than mine. That if the interior self can't simply be conjured away it can become desiccated, it can fall into neglect and a kind of lack of curiosity. Um, somebody very kindly picked up a, a short piece that I wrote recently um, from a, a humanities institute in the US and uh, just pointed me to a blog entry he'd written in response to the piece. And he was you know, very, very nice about the piece until he came to the end when he said... Um, much as everything Cohen says resonates with me, I have to say that perhaps the, mo- the thing that most alarms him and that most alarms me is that he sounds, and I sound when I agree with him, terribly quaint. <coughs> um, and it may be that my last reflections, which also enter the territory of, of the internet and young people, um, and may I mean I don't have sufficient time to nuance and elaborate them so they may um, they may smack of a kind of um, knee jerk panic but I, I, I hope not and I, I certainly want to take this into the discussion I hope we'll have at the end um, uh, so this anxiety about the ways in which our relationship to our interior selves can fall into a kind of neglect becomes especially marked in me when I think of how young people find themselves thrown into this culture of tacitly coerced externalisation. I think, for example, of the solitude of the bedroom, where, in my generation at least, a young person can, could stare out the window, at the ceiling, into books or into walls, but in any case, into a space where no one looks at him but himself. So a space safe from the intrusive gaze of others. And this, I think, this, this unintruded space has, has been quietly and casually surrendered. The young person's private space is now shared with a potential infinity of others. No doubt with some very benign consequences, because it's not simply a matter of um, demonising everything that the web facilitates. Um, The web, in that sense, is uh, a reflection of the immensity of uh, human activity, Um, some and, and as such, some awfully good and some awfully bad things go on, on it. But the investment that might have been made quite unselfconsciously, quite uncontrivedly, 
in the discovery and the cultivation of the self's desires, feelings, wishes, in the solitude of a bedroom, I think is now diverted into anxiously maintaining the external version of the self that will meet the approving gaze of the network world, under whose implicit and explicit scrutiny and judgment the young person is always labouring. How many likes do you have? How many friends? How many followers? What self do you have to invent and sustain in order to maintain and expand these levels of external affirmation? I really just thought that I would put these, uh, these questions about the ways in which um, virtual culture um, is transforming our conception, not just, if you like, of an external privacy, not just of our relationship to our personal information and data, but in a more fundamental way, I think, is transforming the ways in which we construe and express and live ourselves. So these are serious questions, not only about the values we confer on privacy today, but about the sense of selfhood that we might be transmitting to to future generations. Okay, thanks. I think what I'm going to be talking about is slightly different, I'm pleased to say, to the previous two speakers. It's always a th- sort of threat when you go last that you find all the good points have been taken. Um, so I think I'm going to start with two themes. And the first theme really today that I will be returning to shortly is the relationship between individual and technology, which is not really a surprise given my interests. Um, now... Ellen said that we possibly care more about privacy today than ever. And this is probably due to the nature of the privacy invading technologies that surround us. Um, I'm not going to ask everyone if you are carrying a camera with you right now, because I'm willing to bet that everybody is. Um, But ten years ago, it would have been a very different question. So here's a quote um, that seems to reflect on the current state of how technology invades our privacy. You may see connections to the Levinson Inquiry and the way the media organise themselves. Um, And it reflects the society we live in today, except it doesn't. It reflects the right to privacy in the society of 1890. This is from the great Harvard Law Review article, The Right to Privacy, by Warren and Brandeis, where the technology in question was the Kodak... Eastman camera. So our relationship with technology has always affected the way we view our privacy and I want you to sort of bear that in mind. I'm going to come back to that shortly. For the moment what I'm going to do is take us on a slight um, detour. The, The question here was do we still value our privacy which suggests a change in the way that we do value privacy and as the theme of this was reflections and I thought that literature is a mirror of culture and society, the best way to actually find out how people think about their privacy is to look back through works of literature to see definitions um, of privacy in these works. 
So there are some great works which talk about privacy and invasions of privacy and surveillance in the state, and one of which is, of course, the trial, and where we're described Joseph Kay's office to give us an idea of the type of privacy he would have expected before the state intervened. And it's described something a bit like this. It's a wooden office with an anteroom. He has a large window that he can look out into the square. So in essence, he's separated away from his co-workers unless he summons them to come in and see him, which is obviously why it's such a terrible event when the state starts putting him under scrutiny. If we look to about 25, 30 years later, to another classic work, we look to 1984, and the description here is of Winston Smith's cubicle, which we've got a little sort of screen grab from the 1984 film with John Hurt. He's given up an office. He's not as important as Joseph Kay. He's not as senior. But he still has a space which is very much his own, even though it is open to observation by others. Of course, Big Brother is watching him all the time, but we kind of expect that. It's more about what others are doing rather than what the state is doing. If we compare that to the kind of offices that many people work in today, a description of an office from The Circle by Dave Eggers, which is a contemporary book looking at privacy and the way that modern technology interferes with it, we have this description. The front hall was as long as a parade, as tall as a cathedral. There were offices everywhere above, four floors high on either side, every wall made of glass. So it looks like we have changed our attitudes to privacy. Just looking at the places we work in shows a progression in kind of openness in the workplace. Also, what kind of surveillance we are put under has changed through the years. So Kafka writes about this kind of surveillance that Joseph Kay is put under. Through the open window, he noticed the old woman again, who had come close to the window opposite, so she could continue to see everything. So Joseph Kay was observed by his neighbours, and that was the kind of observation which affected his ability to make decisions about himself. By 1984, technology has started to intervene much more so. So, of course, we have the view screen and the idea of Winston Smith being continually under surveillance. But even Winston Smith could escape because he could get out into the countryside. And out in the countryside, there were places where you could be free from the view screen and you could be free from the hidden microphones. So he could snatch time away. He could escape from Big Brother. The important theme here is is that if you have somebody observing you from the outside, you can get away from it. Again, though, if we bring things forward to today, to Dave Edgar's The Circle again, we find something a bit different, and this is what Josh was sort of touching upon. We're not subject to external surveillance any longer. We're now asked to internally survey ourselves and to reveal this to everyone through the myriad of technology. So a This is an excerpt from The Circle. We see your profile and the activity on it as integral to your participation here. This is how co-workers, even those on the other side of campus, know who you are. Communication is not extracurricular. So we are now required to communicate everything about ourselves. So we are now asked to kind of self-observe and self-report. And of course, this is a fictional uh, work, but anybody who reads it can see parallels to Facebook and to Twitter and to Google. So when your uh, hero protagonist, May, is away for the weekend and she comes back and they ask her what her weekend was like, and she said, that was quite boring. You know, what did you do? You didn't update any of your social profiles. 
I just sort of lay on my dad's sofa. But what did you do there? Oh, well, we watched some women's NBA basketball. And suddenly the co-workers are horrified. Why didn't you tell us about this? We have 12,992 people who are interested in women's NBA, our active zingers. (laughs) Weren't you following their feeds? How could you not be part of our community? The idea of the solitude is just an anathema to this concept of the networked environment. Also, if we compare 1984, where it was the solitude of the woods, um, we have a character in uh, the circle. I, I won't say what happens to them in case you want to read it. I don't want to give away spoilers. Um, but you will find that even escaping to the country means you can't escape the observation because it's no longer about the state trying to survey you. It's everyone. Everyone anywhere is part of this active network. So the character who tries to escape finds escaping much more difficult than compared to Winston Smith in 1984. So what we get here is a a change in the nature of the type of surveillance that we're put under. It's a change away into what we as, as lawyers are interested in is the concept of informational privacy. It's not so much, privacy isn't so much a question about the person any longer, but but as as Josh was touching on, this external picture or image of the person, which is built upon by the data that we put out there. So the nature of data surveillance now becomes a central question for us as lawyers, and particularly this is what I'm interested in. And of course this brings me back to my neat theme of talking about the importance of technology and how it has changed the way in which we are both externally surveyed and which we internally survey ourselves. So the reason that privacy is so important to lawyers, the way we, we look at the right to privacy, is it's about autonomy. It's about the right to choose what you communicate to others about yourself and the right to choose how you communicate to others about yourself. It must be said that, of course, autonomy is perhaps more illusory today than actual, especially in London. There are CCTV cameras everywhere. Um, so um, one, my PhD student counted them on the way into LSE and gave up and he got to 42 or 43. He just gave up at that point and said it wasn't worth continuing to count them any longer. Um, the, the passive camera, the old-fashioned camera, though, is something that you can perhaps do a little bit to help your autonomy about. You can sort of stick on some dark glasses, um, and you can stick on a hat, pull it down a bit, and um, in so doing, you can, you can try and hide a little bit about yourself from the gaze of the external vision. But it's much harder to hide data about oneself. When you start carrying things like these, which everybody does, um, it's actually very hard to stick a hat or a pair of glasses, virtual hat or glasses, on these things and to actually give you that sense of autonomy over your data again. So the problem is nowadays with data valence, as it's called, or data surveillance, is that you're never aware when you're being observed and how and who's observing you. This means you're likely to alter your behaviour all the time, so you lose that personal autonomy, or you simply just give up and you allow people unfettered access to everything about you, in which case you lose what we call informational autonomy. There's this takeoff of one versus the other. And the big concern for us lawyers at the moment is we're very close to the next development of technology, something called ambient intelligence. 
And ambient intelligence is basically when what we call the Internet of Things and the digital Internet merge. And everything around us has a built-in intelligence and decision-making process. So to try and kind of explain how this works, this is a quote from two very good um, Dutch lawyers called Morel Hildebrand and Bert Jaap Koops. It is a vision of a future world in which automatic smart environments take an unprecedented number of decisions for us and about us in order to cater to our inferred preferences. In such a world, waking up will be accompanied by a personalised influx of light and music. Coffee will be ready at the right moment and with the correct measures of sugar, milk and caffeine in accordance with personal taste and budget. Food will be ordered in tune with one's lifestyle, possibly including health-related restrictions. The drive to the office will be organised by one smart car that communicates with other cars and traffic monitoring systems. Office buildings will be accessible for those chipped with the right ID. Incoming messages will be shorted in terms of urgency and importance, and agendas will be reconfigured in light of automatically inferred workflow environments. So, in essence, what's happening is that we are passing over intensely personal information to intelligent agents to help us organise our intensely complicated lives. These systems require very complicated data profiling. It's based on something called autonomic profiling. This is pattern recognition in large databases. It is, if you will, the system that you have already seen on Amazon that recommends you books, or the system that you see where Google plays adverts on web pages on steroids. It is going to have much more information. What we're worried about as lawyers is what it can reveal about oneself. Your buying habits could reveal, for instance, you're a functioning alcoholic. It might reveal things you don't even know about yourself. It might reveal that you are borderline racist or homophobic. It could, by accident, define you as a paedophile or a potential rapist, which sounds quite bad, but it's even worse, or it would be even worse, if police were using these systems to try and profile people who were criminals to talk to them before they commit crimes. This is, sounds crazy, and no, no government would be doing this kind of thing, um, but the police in Dallas, Chicago, and London are already trialling this. They have these predictive systems which will predict when crimes will occur and can, in some cases, even predict who might commit the crimes. This is all fine if the data is accurate, but it gets worse if the data is inaccurate. And even if the data is accurate, what's it actually knowing about us that we don't know ourselves? So what we have is a change in the way we have to think about privacy. Historically, lawyers thought about privacy as a cultural privacy, a respect for the body corporeal mostly. So we looked at things like locked doors, the use of walls, curtains, these kinds of things, to signal that we want to be in a private sphere. And we followed cultural requirements. You don't just gatecrash a funeral. It's just not done. But we're moving from that to now what's called informational privacy. And this is defined by the American lawyer, Alan Weston, as the claims of individuals, groups, or institutions to determine for themselves when, how, and to what extent information about them is communicated to others. Also, the law professor Ruth Gavison refers to it slightly differently, but similarly, as the measure of access others have to you through information, attention, and physical proximity. So they're, they're both similar. For, for Weston, it's about communication. For Gavison, it's about access. But essentially, it's the right to control your data that is key to this. But it, now it becomes very difficult to imagine how one does this. How do you retain access control over your data or communicative control over your data when you have these smart devices that control the data for you? 
How do you know what your phone is communicating about you back to Google or Apple or anyone else? And how many of you, in all truth and honesty, can reset all the settings for privacy on your smartphone? And even if you think you can, I'll tell you there are some you will miss. So it seems to me that it's impossible to wear our virtual scarf or virtual dark glasses. And it's starting to look that anonymity becomes much more difficult, nay, possibly impossible. For all time, you're broadcasting everything you need to know about yourself. So I'm walking about as a billboard broadcasting, I am Andrew Murray, I am 35, honest. <laughs> uh, I'm a university professor. I've got undesirable contacts. I'm often seen in the company of a chap called Eric King, who's not very popular with GCHQ, which probably means they watch me as well. Um, all kinds of things. Even the simple thing, as Ellen said, you Google for yourself and you find all kinds of information. So you Google and you pick up photographs of yourself. It's absolutely wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing thing about having the name Andrew Murray is you become Google blocked. Everything that turns up is about a chap and his tennis. But essentially what this means is going forward, we have to really think about what it means for privacy. And so I'm going to leave you with a couple of thoughts. One is the technology is stripping us more and more of our autonomy. And it's starting to look like the only way to get that autonomy back is by using the technology. It's starting to look like the only answer to technology is technology, which is not really ideal for personal autonomy. But we're at this stage where we're at a tipping point. A very good new work on this, or recent work on this, is by Helen Nissenbaum, where she argues we need to reconsider what privacy is, and that the modern, sorry, the modern conception of privacy should be about contextual privacy. That is, let's take my health data. I don't want a pharmaceutical company to know all my health data. But if I walk out from here and I'm knocked down by a bus, I want an emergency physician to have access to all that data as quickly as possible. This is context. What data means to us depends on who wants to access it, when and why. And so what we really need is some kind of contextualised control over our data. Now, companies are starting to work on this if we want to rely on technology. Um, they're starting to work on digital vaults and intelligent systems, kind of like Siri on steroids, which can actually make sense of the questions they're being asked, who's asking them, and can answer to them in accordance with our preferences. It means we kind of lose our autonomy, but we give it over to our agent, perhaps. It's the start of what many people call the singularity, when the agents that are around us that we have built actually become smarter than us in terms of being able to order and deal with things. And so we give them more control over our essential decision-making. Now, I'm going to leave you with the thought that this is maybe a slightly pessimistic view of the future. If we value our privacy, do we really want agents to have control over decisions about when data about us is given up? But I'm quite sanguine about it, and I think the last thing I should say is that sort of I, for one, welcome our new robot overlords. <laughs> Thank you.
Well, I really uh, hadn't appreciated that this uh, discussion was going to open Pandora's box, but at least Andrew left us with a bit of hope at the end. Uh, let's take some questions, ladies and gentlemen, and wait for the uh, microphone, and let's have short questions. Only three people in this uh, auditorium were allowed to give a lecture. And I'm going to start with questions in that area, and then I'll go to that area, and then this area. And that. The uh, chap in the middle with the stripey top. Uh, thank you for that talk, Andrew. That was very good. Um, there can be no complicity in anything to do with social media from the people involved in it because most people don't have any sense of history whatsoever. So how can they actually be on a mutual relationship with the people who actually construct the rules? Thank you. What I'm going to do is take three questions at a time, if you'll permit me, and then uh, another question in that uh, neck of the woods uh, that looks to be the man in the semi-dark glasses, looking pretty private. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. Um, this is a question for Andrew as well. Um, what, what legislative reforms do you see happening or would you like to happen to protect our data autonomy? Another question, the lady in the uh, third row. Yes, thanks. This is for anyone who'd like to answer it. Um, the, I'm thinking about the issue of um, telephone metadata and gathering of that kind of data, which is seen, seen as harmless because it doesn't identify individuals, it just looks for patterns. Um, intuitively, I feel that there's still something wrong with that. So could I get your thoughts on that? Does it, does it perhaps suggest that there's an intrinsic value with privacy, which um, means that it's not really about the consequences, it's about the invasion itself? Jolly good. Ellen, are you going to say something about complicity? <laughs> with those who construct technology? Um, I, I, I understood it. Ooh, uh, <laughs> we're all out in the open now. <laughs> um, let me try to f figure out with you. Um, I think for me, it's it's like it's it's an important point here is to not see this as like the technology as separate from us um, as human beings and in, in, in the interaction. Yeah, and in the end, the technology is constructed and designed by humans. It's not. It's not. It doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not. Um, it's not something that is grows. Um, at a certain point, there was a human involved in building this. And I also think that it's an important thing to point out is that um, that also means that our values that we have in the in Josh uh, touch upon this that uh, it also changes in society and changes what we think about who we are and uh, what our personal data or our identities are that is reflected in how we design technologies. Um, so I would have a little bit of a of a contention with the fact, like to say, like this is what technology does to us, because in first instance, it's us doing something to technology, right? And I think at that point, we have the power to intervene. Uh, Robin Mansell, who's here at the LSE, wrote this wonderful book uh, called Imagining uh, the Internet, and she makes a really important point and says, like, instead of figuring out what the technology is doing to us, how can we make sure that we make the technology do what we want it to do? What is the imagined future that we have? And at what point can we intervene? Because it doesn't just come down from heaven. It's not, you know, 
God, if you believe in God, giving us this technology and saying live with it. So I think in that sense, in terms of the multiplicity, we need to become more aware of at what point we actually do have control over this. What are we building in? Who are the people who are building this? And they're not some, an obscure group of people in that sense. We can actually go and interact with it at that point. Would the Wimbledon champion like to comment on regulation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would. I think it's a good thing to come in there. I mean, I, I agree the point the technology doesn't come down from on high. Um, we have a symbiotic regula- um, relationship with technology so that um, as we change our culture and the way we live our lives, the technology changes to reflect that, but it also works the other way as well. When the technology is developed, sometimes initially you can't see what it does, what its purpose is, but then somebody can identify a purpose and it, it, it changes the way we interact. I mean, Twitter is a great example of that. It first, what was the value of 140 characters to try and communicate anything complicated? Um, and I think it's trying to get at the heart of that relationship. And the trouble that we have in terms of regulation is that um, we tend to be led more by a few technology leaders who they take the first move into this area and the majority of the, 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 the community then follow them into certain technologies. And once a technology, especially communications technology, reaches a certain degree of penetration, it reaches a certain value in life of its own because there are so many people on it, you have to be part of it. And Facebook is a really prime example of this. It reached this point. So for regulating it, the problem is, for lawyers in particular, is that the law is very slow to respond in comparison to these kind of first movers in the community as a whole. Um, If we wanted to do something, I think we needed to be a, a bit more of an activist in the way that we use technology and consider what we're doing. Um, before we sort of blindly subscribe to the sort of platforms that are available. Um, well, just in, in response to this question of, of complicity, I mean, I, I wasn't sure if the questioner was um, making an explicit reference to my comment about how we're complicit with the culture of intrusion. Um, and coming out of psychoanalysis, um, I'm not thinking about a sort of um, nefarious active complicity with, um, with, with corporate or state agents. I, I'm thinking really much more about an unwitting or unconscious complicity, which um, has something, I mean, from, a, from a, a psychoanalytic, but not just a psychoanalytic perspective, has something to do, I think, with our powerless relationship to technologies, our sense that, um, uh, and I think, you know, Andrew's talk was so powerful in this respect that actually what increasingly characterises our um, relationship to technologies is uh, our incapacity to map and to apprehend them. Um, uh, and so, you know, two associations that came to my mind listening to Andrew was, first of all, that sort of pop classic of, um, of, of, of technological theory, Toffler's Future Shock, which, which, you know, listening to Andrew seems more and more like a prescient um, uh, thesis, really, that um, we're increasingly traumatised by the gap between um, uh, the power of technologies and the unpower, the impotence of our of our cognitive um, relationship to them, um, and I suppose I was also thinking about sort of cultural theorists like Frederick Jameson, who who define our cultural moment in terms of a crisis of cognitive mapping. So the complicity that I'm talking about is um, a complicity that we're being sort of railroaded into without knowing very much about it. 
Any more questions from this bottom left quadrant? Uh, gentleman in the... I'm putting it very simply, um, where do you see us in ten years' time? Ten years' time, fine. And there's someone right behind? Just speaking about the ubiquitousness of technology and social media, what do we do about it when it's so valuable for things like protest movements and at the same time so ominous? And I'm thinking of the Arab Spring using technology and also text messages to Ukrainian protesters that say, you are registered as part of a disturbance. How do we play this out? Any other questions in this area? Oh, lady in the front row, thank you. I should say I, I did worry about that interiority, inferiority uh, thing that Josh... And he has a book called How to Read Freud, and I thought, well, maybe I'll have to uh, pick that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was interested in the issue of consent, and particularly informed consent, and how mm. we sort of deliver our privacy up for wholesale use. Um, <laughs> pick a question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll take that last one, actually, from informed consent, because it most clearly maps onto my interests and my research. Uh, I mean, as I said, lawyers are particularly interested in privacy as, as a central part of autonomy. Uh, it's part of your self-determination to be able to control when people can and otherwise cannot know information about oneself. Um, now, the most obvious way that one gives up information about oneself is through consent, through agreeing to this being done. And we have a long tradition of informed consent in a number of areas, particularly in medical law, where, of course, it's a key issue on whether or not one consents to treatment. Um, now, the problem that we have is that there is no clear mapping of a similar uh, provision into what you might call data law. Data protection, which is a different thing to data privacy, and in month the first set of questions, somebody asked about legislative reforms, and I would like to see a data privacy law to match a data protection law, <coughs> because data protection to me is not a data privacy right. Um, data protection law talks about consent, but not informed consent. Mm -hmm. So your consent is anything that the data controller can demonstrate you have given. Um, so it's all these kind of boxes. Yes, I agree to you sending me everything ever, and other boxes that you have to untake at the same time. Um, I think that's very worrying, and I think as lawyers we should be sort of pressing to change that where one, especially with the importance, you know, as, as the other speakers both were speaking about, the external value of data in the person, that I think it would be very important that we need to update and look towards medical law, perhaps, as an example of how we should be thinking about data privacy going forward and, and getting away. I'd like to get away from data protection and into data privacy. Protest movements? Uh, ten years' time, you know, in the social sciences, it's hard enough explaining the present and the past. <laughs> <laughs> ten years ago, uh, maybe my colleagues are more ambitious. <laughs> Uh, I was actually going to say futurology. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I don't know that I'd, I, uh, I'd try to do that. But um, I'd actually like to follow up on consent and on the protest movement, both of them. Because the consent is an interesting, because when it's about data and data that other people have, it's a different type of consent, which is what you're talking about. And the consent that I work with often is about the consent to share certain things with certain people at certain times and the way it's worked as like I was saying in my presentation and Josh touched upon this as well is that it's a constant process where we're deciding in this situation do I want to give it to someone and this is the really complicated thing with the way that consent is constructed in the technology where when you sign up to something 
you take, you know, I consent, mm -hmm. and then five years later, you're still on that same platform. Everybody on it has changed. Uh, all the things you do have changed, and you gave consent to something that is no more re not realistic anymore. And I think that's one of the things that if we're thinking about in 10 years' time, this is going to be a big problem for technology companies, and how to deal with this. Because you're giving consent for knowing our relationships and our interactions, and it's a really good question and really important. But, and why are consent forms always in the smallest font? <laughs> because nobody ever reads them anyway, right? Like, so they know that you just take. Uh, and I think it, it just in the protest movement, it's not my my field, but I think when you were talking about this, one of the impo really important things is to also when we do all this discussion about all the stuff that's out there, all the stuff that we know, with all that over kind of information, the overload of information that we have, is we often forget to look at the gaps and all those people who are not on there, and who are not being heard, who are, whose information is not available, who are being left out by definition, either because they don't have access or because they don't know how. And this is, when we talk about protest movement, I know this wasn't your question, but I think there's a very important question about whose public data becomes the data that we construct our protests and movements around. Because there's a whole bunch of people who are not represented there, either because they have, you know, are not on the technology or because they've hidden stuff about themselves. Now, before I turn to the right wing, <laughs> we had a question on telephones, and I've completely forgotten what your question was. Could you Metadata. Yeah. Metadata. Yes, I mean, the, the, problem the assumption is that it's harmless. I have to say, sitting on a train listening to people's mobile phone conversations, it's not harmless, it's gravely irritating. <laughs> Anyone want to talk about metadata? Um, not so, well, a little bit. I think you're right. I think the metadata is valid because it, it represents an artifact which you can put together with other artifacts to recreate an image of what goes on. Uh, it doesn't reveal what that person's doing or what they're saying, but it reveals connections, and that's where it can be valuable. And I was just going to say to, to, on the, the protest in, in, in Ukraine, just uh, some people might not be aware of the technology which can be employed and involved. Um, the technology which is employed and involved is that the authorities can set up a fake base station for a telecoms company, which captures, they make it much stronger than the, the ones that are used by the telecoms companies. It then captures all the mobile phones in that area to that base station. They can then interrogate all the phones to get their registration data, and these text messages that come back are sent by that base station to say, you have been recorded as being present in this location at this time. If you do not disperse, uh, we are aware that you are here. And you can even, um, you can even I, I know a chap who's a lawyer who serves court orders over that technology to all the people who are in a location at a particular time. <laughs> right, questions from this side. Well, uh, we have a lady in the... Two ladies in the front. We'll take the front. Um, yes, please. Yeah, this, this was... Uh, sorry. Um, th this was um, tr triggered by... Um, Ellen talking earlier about uh, there's no such thing as absolute privacy and subsequently um, Josh um, talking about um, the anxiety that we have maintaining the external versions of ourself. Um, it made me think about the lengths we have to go to to maintain our privacy um, to the point where we have um, avatars, where we have multiple um, 
online personas, you know, multiple um, emails to the point where we don't know who we are anymore, um, just so that nobody has access to personal information. So we have fractured kind of selves, and it's kind of like the, ref the refuge of the private individual. Where does one go while still interacting in that way? Where do we go? We'll, we'll take the next question. Um, my question relates to your comment, Andrew, about we should turn to the med medical law model. Um, I've done a little bit of research around this care data issue, which I've been yeah. quite increasingly horrified by. Um, looked at the GMC notes for doctors and found, I think it's point 0.28, that says there was a statutory instrument that overrides their requirement for patient confidentiality. I'm very concerned. How can that be legal, is, is my question. Because um, looking into it all, I, didn't, I couldn't understand how any GP who has to have, accept those values on the GMC website, how could they submit one person's data without that person having full, complete, and absolute understanding of what the implications were? Sorry, long question. Um, without, without being, being um, unethical. Because if they did it to us, we would sue them in any other context. Let's take a third question, and if the answer to that question is more than five minutes, you better take it up over a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a hand on the third row. Yes. Um, you were joking about uh, privacy policies and the font size and uh, the fact that nobody looks at them. Um, is any work being done um, to make privacy policies more accessible so that more people do look at them and are informed and fully informed about what they're saying um, so that they can make those decisions sensibly. Right. Work on privacy, doctors, possibly... Can, can I have a go at the first question? Um, yes. Just at a... Um, I, I think this is... I said about fractured cells. I mean, in, in psychology and social psychology, um, which is where I come from, We've always had to manage our identities and privacies in different settings. And we, I think one of the interesting differences is that now we are forced to think about it in a way that we were never forced to think about it before. It used to be something that we did automatically when I'm, you know, I would go and sit next to Josh and if I would whisper something, I would know that this is you know, kind of part of a discussion that we were having. And physically, I would exclude other people who would then not butt in. But now we, we constantly, when we post something, when we put something up, mm -hmm. we constantly have to think about it. It's a cognitive awareness that, about our self-management that we didn't really have before. So I think, I think that's interesting. I think it makes you feel furtive. Yeah. You know, this is in a way please, I want please, to judge please, that. Please. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I think it's about how it makes us feel. You know, it's yeah. like a kind of dirty, dark yeah. little secret. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. what's your name here? Who yeah. are you on this website? You know, it's like being pushed into that. Yeah. When you might not, you know, and, and even today, with the price of a second-class letter stamp going up, and I thought again, we're pushed into that, you know, that, that kind of interaction. Yeah, one of the possible effects, I think, of. Um, a fracturing of the self and a kind of um, diversion of the self into these different channels that you're talking about is that um, I think what it what it unfacilitates, if that's a word, um, is is um, a sense of a core, an eliminable core self that we can actually inhabit and be in contact with. That in a sense we're 
sort of displaced from a sense of an ongoing living, breathing self that subtends and conditions the different selves that we undoubtedly are in many different contexts um, and sort of pushes us into these multiple external selves that in a sense are the only, become the only ways of identifying ourselves because we're so busy in creating and sustaining them. And a quick, and a, sorry, I beg a quick answer on the medical. Excuse me, please. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. A, a quick answer on the question about the, the, the medical data, which is, of course, very current at the moment, is that there is, of course, a difference between whether it's legal or whether it's ethical. Whether it's ethical, I leave to the General Medical Council to determine and advise their members on. The reason that it is legal for it to be done in this way and for the government to require this data to be handed over if requested in this way is because we have no data privacy right and we have no ownership of that data. It's not our data, it's data that other people own about us. And this is the, the issue that under the only law that protects us in this area, which is the Data Protection Act, the Data Protection Act has a number of exemptions. I think they, they run to about 21 different exemptions that include things such as gathering data uh, for the purpose of um, doing things like mapping healthcare and the allocation of resources and things like that. So it's perfectly legal for the government to do so, um, but it's because we don't own the data, the data is owned by someone else. The only protection we have is about people abusing it. The oversight is by the Information Commissioner's Office, who's already said they're going to be looking at this as well. So, Okay, last triptych of questions from... Can I just uh, answer quickly to your privacy? There, there, yes, there is people working on it, but I would say actually we need to start considering that maybe in some situations these policies are just don't fit. Yeah, if it's about handing over your data to a specific organisation, fair enough, and people are working on making it more accessible and understandable, but we need to think about is a, a policy terms and conditions the good thing to have for all the different types of activities that we take online? It might not be the way forward for some more complex, continuous interactions. Okay. Questions over there? The gentleman with the beard and moustache. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in this concept of exteriority and what the motive for it might be, and I wonder whether the two terms are useful in any way. Um, celebrity, mm. or wanting celebrity, and um, branding. Fascinating question. Uh, another one over there. Is that end of the room silent? <coughs> Fine. Uh, I think, Josh, you are first in line to do Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, my first thought uh, when you mentioned celebrity is the uh, ubiquitous claim of every participant in reality TV contests. I'm just going to be myself. Um, which almost always means the opposite of, 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 of what it claims. In other words, I am going to comply with some version of myself that seems to sell quite nicely. Um, so, I mean, one of the more sort of insidious uh, aspects of, it, of, of the exteriorization of self in, uh, in contemporary culture is that um, we use the vocabulary of privacy, of authenticity, of being oneself, um, to do precisely the opposite, to, 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 um, to erode the sense of, of who one is. 
Um, and branding, I think, is very keyed into a certain language of privacy, of authenticity, of contact with oneself. Um, and I think, you know, that's one of the paradoxes that I actually explore in the book. This appears to be a golden age of privacy in the sense that we're much more comfortable um, being in contact with and communicating and expressing our private selves. But the problem is, the more uh, willing we are to share our private selves, of course, the less private they are. Right, uh, 6.30, I think that's the witching hour. Uh, I would very much like to thank you, the audience, for being attentive, for asking some splendid questions and joining in the debate. And I'd particularly like to thank our three speakers, Andrew Murray, Evan Helsper, and Josh Cohen, for absolutely fascinating, I found really intriguing presentations, and it's just been a very nice evening. Now, before you give them a clap, let me remind you that there's still some events. Uh, they're in the brochure if you haven't got it. And I think after the last event, uh, well, I hope we're opening a bar somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so do hang around. But thanks to you.